Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. As I've been saying since about March, I think it was March, what are even days of the week or months of the year at this point? I hope that all of my listeners are doing their very best to stay healthy, safe, and sane with the ever-ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Every week, it seems like we're right on the verge of getting a vaccine, and then every week, that hope of the vaccine seems to vanish, and the government, in the United States at least, just continues to bungle things in new, fun, and creative ways. It's great. This week, I'm moving away from female writers of the Harlem Renaissance and turning my attention instead to female artists of the Harlem Renaissance. As always, it's a little bit difficult to describe art, which is very visual, through an audio medium like a podcast, so I am going to be posting many images both on the website and on Instagram, and I'll be talking about how you can access those at the end of today's episode. For today's episode, I'm going to be talking about Augusta Savage, who is one of the most famous sculptors of the Harlem Renaissance. Her study guide involves a scandalous scholarship, a little bit of child marriage, and some vacations to Palm Beach. Let's begin. Augusta Savage was born on February 29th, 1892, a.k.a. Leap Day, in Green Cove Springs, Florida, 40 miles away from Jacksonville, as Augusta Christine Fells. Augusta Savage, as an adult, would say that her birth date was probably the most appropriate date that she could be born because she was always leaping forward in life. Her parents were Edward and Cornelia Fells. Her father was a local Methodist minister, and as is par for the course, we don't know that much about her mother because since when do we care about women in history? Augusta was the seventh of her parents' 14 children, but only nine of her siblings would actually survive past childhood. Growing up, the Fells family was not well off. Even though her father was a minister and actually owned some land of his own, he had trouble turning his job and his land into actual income and often had to resort to manual labor, specifically painting houses, in order to make ends meet and put enough food on the table to feed all 14 children. At an early age, Augusta became very interested in art, specifically sculpture. Green Cove Springs was a major brickmaking hub within the United States because it was full of clay, and apparently little baby Augusta loved taking the clay and turning it first into mud pies, and then as she got older and had better hand-eye coordination, into actual physical objects. There is just one problem. Her father absolutely despised this because, according to his religious beliefs, turning clay into objects violated the commandment against making graven images because they were too similar to idols. As a child, 
Augusta's father would literally beat her multiple times a week in a failed attempt to turn her interest to other things. When Augusta was 15, the entire Fells family moved from Green Cove Springs to West Palm Beach because her father got a full-time ministry job at a Methodist church there, and that church paid a lot better than his job in Green Cove Springs. At her new school in West Palm Beach, Augusta's art teacher recognized her talents and pushed her to pursue art no matter what her father thought. And the school's principal, a Mr. Milkins, also recognized that Augusta's art talents were special and ended up paying her a dollar a day to stay late after school and teach art classes to other students. In 1907, around the same time that the family moved to West Palm Beach, when Augusta was 15 years old, she got married. Because that's exactly what 15-year-olds should do, settle down and get married. Her husband was John T. Moore, a local carpenter, and I really tried to find out information about John T. Moore. For example, how old he was, because if he was like 17, the marriage is still questionable, but not creepy. But if John was in his 20s, then it gets much iffier. Either way, in 1907, when she was 15, Augusta married John, and the next year she gave birth to a daughter named Irene. And she and John may have moved back to Green Cove Springs during her pregnancy, but that bit is much harder to corroborate. By the time Augusta had given birth to her daughter, art was becoming more than just a fun hobby for her. She was starting to actually make a little bit of money off of it due to those after-school classes she was teaching. However, tragically for Augusta, soon after Irene's birth, her husband died, and almost immediately after his death, she remarried to another local carpenter named James Savage. We do know that Augusta was definitely living in West Palm Beach by this point in her life, and for those fans of Real Housewives of New York who listen to this podcast, I'm sure Luann and Tinsley would have a field day arguing about where exactly in Palm Beach Augusta was living. Anyways, right the time right after her marriage to James Savage were some difficult years for young Augusta. She had to deal with her family's complete lack of support when it came to her desire to pursue the arts. Also, Palm Beach, which was about 300 miles south of where she had grown up, didn't have the type of clay that she was used to working with. Uh, remember, Green Cove Springs was known for its red clay, whereas West Palm Beach was more known for its, well, sand. And as a result, Augusta just didn't produce that much new work for several years. But then in 1919, through her old school principal, Mr. Milkins, Augusta managed to befriend a local potter who began supplying her with clay once again, and Augusta almost immediately resumed sculpting. Her sculpture at this point moved into a more religious direction, including several sculptures of the Virgin Mary, and with this new direction, her father at last approved of her work. 
Around this time, Augusta started to enter some of her smaller pieces into the West Palm Beach County Fair, and she ended up winning a ribbon of honor, as well as a cash prize of $25, which is about $350 nowadays. I know that doesn't sound like all that much, but for someone like Augusta, who's in her 20s and has never been publicly recognized for her art before, this was huge. Augusta decided to take this success and a little bit of money that had come with it and move her and her daughter Irene to the city of Jacksonville. When she was in Jacksonville, she decided that she was going to try to make more money by making sculptures of local prominent African Americans. This business venture ended up failing because, well, as it turned out, thanks to Jim Crow, there weren't all that many prominent African Americans in Jacksonville, and most of them just weren't that interested in getting sculptures of them made by a totally unknown artist. But Augusta was convinced that yes, she wanted to be a real artist. During her time in Jacksonville, she also was taking art classes at the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical College for Negroes, which would later become Florida A&M, on the side. Through her classes, she got a recommendation from a professor to leave Jacksonville and move to New York City, which, frankly, had way more opportunities for artists, especially African-American artists, than a little town in Florida. Around this time, Augusta and her husband, James Savage, split up, but she decided to keep his last name because, frankly, Augusta Savage just has a nicer ring to it than Augusta Fells. In early 1920, Augusta moved up to New York City. She arrived in the Big Apple with only $6.40 in her pocket, which is around $85 in 2020 money. Because of the lack of funds that she had, she decided to leave her daughter, who was a teenager, with her parents in Florida. Or maybe she brought Irene along with her and pretended that the two were siblings, not a mother-daughter pair, in an attempt to make herself seem younger, but quickly realized that she couldn't pay for both of them and then send Irene back down to Florida. Either way, pretty quickly, Irene was out of the picture and was back in Florida, where she would remain for quite some time. Because Augusta only had about $6 to her name in New York City, she quickly took on a job working as an apartment cleaner and caretaker to make ends meet. Once she had a little bit more money, she got accepted to and enrolled in the Cooper Union School of Art, and very quickly, thanks to her talents in sculpture, ended up getting a scholarship which paid for the vast majority of her tuition. And because Augusta wasn't afraid to work hard, she ended up getting through the four-year curriculum of Cooper Union in only three years, which made the whole paying for art college much easier. During her time at Cooper Union, Augusta very quickly got a reputation for being a skilled sculptor and quickly began getting commissions for her sculptures 
of African Americans, specifically leaders of the Harlem Renaissance, because as it turned out, she was probably the most talented sculptor at the time who created images of the African American body, and specifically her sculptures of African Americans were non-stereotyped, which obviously leaders of the Harlem Renaissance loved. Her big break was when she got chosen to make a bust of W.E.B. Du Bois for the New York Public Library. The way she got chosen to do this was because when she wasn't in art school, Augusta liked to visit the New York Public Library to read so she could get a more traditional education, and through her many trips to the New York Public Library, she befriended a bunch of librarians, and through her friendship with them, she was able to be chosen to make Du Bois's statue. She also was chosen to make a bust of Marcus Garvey, who she met in 1921 after some of her poetry was published in his newspaper, The Negro World. And we haven't talked about Marcus Garvey yet in this podcast, and he's a pretty important figure, so let's do a quick little recap of who the heck he is. Marcus Garvey basically was the first black nationalist in the United States. He grew up in Jamaica, where he founded the United Negro Improvement Association, otherwise known as the UNIA, in 1914. The goal of the UNIA was to create a completely Black-governed country in Africa, and if this happened, it would be huge, because in the 1910s, every country except for Ethiopia and Liberia in Africa was colonized by European powers, and even Liberia, which technically was self-governing, was basically run by the United States. Garvey moved to Harlem in 1916, and by 1920, he had over 2 million followers due to his ideas of the need for Black people, African American and otherwise, to be economically independent and proud of their cultural heritage. Basically, when it comes to Black nationalism and Black pride, Marcus Garvey set the stage. However, I do think it is important However, I do think it is important to note that Marcus Garvey had some less great ideas. For example, he opposed integration because he thought it would be better for African Americans to be separate in doing their own, in his opinion, awesome thing than to be integrated with white society, which meant that he sometimes agreed with the KKK, which is never good, and he later on got convicted of mail fraud, which also isn't great. So that's Marcus Garvey. Well, back to Augusta Savage, because she's who we're talking about. In addition to her art, Augusta got known in Harlem and the general Harlem Renaissance scene for her participation in various public readings, poetry, and her interest in civil rights. In 1923, Augusta got married for a third and final time. This husband was Robert Lincoln Poston, a close friend of Marcus Garvey, who Augusta had met when she was making the bust of Garvey. 
Sadly, the two were only married for five months when Poston died unexpectedly from complications of a boat accident he had been in that was, re that was related to a UNIA mission. The two did have a daughter together, but their daughter died only 10 days after being born. However, Augusta did manage to bounce back from this double tragedy. In 1924, she applied for and won a scholarship to study at the Fontainebleau School of the Arts in France. Winning the scholarship was a huge fucking deal because back in the 1910s and 20s, to be a proper artist, you had to go to France. However, when the scholarship committee found out that she was African American, they pulled the funding because two of the other female artists who were chosen refused to travel with an African American, which, yet again, is proof that we really need intersectional feminism. Come on, ladies, you should be united against men and not let your other diverging identities disunify you. Augusta, rightly, was furious by this turn of events. She famously wrote, quote, Democracy is a strange thing. My brother was good enough to be accepted in one of the regiments that saw service in France during the war, but it seems his sister is not good enough to be a guest of the country for which he fought. Soon, Augusta was writing to public newspapers across the city about the scholarship committee's refusal to let her, the scholarship co committee's refusal to give her the scholarship. And because she had made a name for herself as an artist in New York, she quickly got a lot of supporters who wrote on her behalf. And the scholarship rejection became quite the scandal within New York. However, despite all the outcry, she didn't get the scholarship back because the French government was also opposed to integrating that particular art program at the moment. Out of this whole scandal, Augusta started to get a reputation. She was known for being difficult, aka for not letting white people, mostly white men, bully her. This reputation became even more ingrained when the heads of other white foundations tried to push her to pursue primitivism in her sculpture, which would entail her using more stereotyped imagery of the African-American body, which Augusta was not about. In my opinion, it's pretty much bullshit that Augusta got this reputation when someone, specifically a woman of color, stands up for herself, they should not be punished for that. Instead, they should be applauded and rewarded. When men stand up for themselves, there isn't backlash. But whenever a woman does it, especially a woman of color, it's seen as something problematic. And things were just going to continue being messy for Augusta. The next year, her father got paralyzed in an accident, and on top of that, her parents' home down in Florida got destroyed by a hurricane. While all that was going on, Augusta did win another scholarship to study abroad, in Italy this time, but she had to turn down the offer to help her family out instead. 
Augusta would end up supporting her family both financially and physically. At some point, she would have up to eight different family members staying with her in her three-bedroom apartment while she was trying to keep producing art. But in 1929, while things were struggling for the rest of the country, things began improving for Augusta. She created a sculpture of her nephew called Gamine that got photographed for Opportunity magazine. The photo got tons of attention, and due to it, she ended up winning the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship, a fellowship that was only for African-American artists and writers. Other winners of the fellowship included Claude McKay, Maya Angelou, and Marian Anderson. With the money from the fellowship, Augusta was finally able to go to Paris. She would spend a year in the city where she studied at the Académie de la Grande Chimere with an artist who won the first ever Grand Prix de Rome. And he adored her, by the way, and thought that she was amazingly talented. Two of the sculptures that she made while in Paris got accepted into and exhibited at the Grand Palais in Paris, which, not too shabby. And while Augusta was in Paris, she won a second Rosenwald Fellowship, which meant that she got to extend her stay another year. And then she won a Carnegie Foundation grant, which allowed her to travel around Europe, mostly in Belgium and Germany. In addition to getting to study art and continuing to create sculpture, while Augusta was living in Paris, she got to mix with the larger expatriate African-American community that had developed in France and meet people like Josephine Baker and Ada Bricktop-Smith, as well as getting to experience not having to deal with constant segregation and racism for pretty much the first time in her life. So that's really cool. Augusta ended up returning back to the United States in 1932, and once she was back in New York, she continued to produce art, but also started shifting more into teaching. The same year that she returned back to the States, she opened the Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, and out of her studio space, she began giving out free art lessons to local young artists. This school ended up becoming the biggest free art school in New York City, and many young African-American artists who would end up becoming very famous would be taught in the school, including Jacob Lawrence. In the following years, she became the first non-white member of the National Association of Women Painters and Sculptures, which I think says something about how huge of a figure she was, not just in the New York art scene, but on the national stage as a whole, and also helped to co-found the Harlem Artists Guild. Through her positions in the association and the guild, Augusta successfully lobbied the WPA to include African-American artists in its different federal programs for the arts, and the, w and the WPA did that, which was huge. A lot of different New Deal programs were pretty segregated by race, and the WPA was one of the few exceptions to the rule. 1937 ended up being a huge turning point for Augusta. That year, she was chosen to make one of the sculptures for the 1939 New York World Fair. 
the sculpture she was selected to make was meant to celebrate African-American achievements in music, and the final piece she created was called The Harp and was based on the James Weldon Johnson song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is also known as the Black National Anthem. The final piece was put on display in the World's Fair Contemporary Arts Building and got amazing reviews and apparently was one of the most visited sites during that year's World's Fair. However, she had to pay for the construction of the piece entirely out of pocket. The same year, she became the first director for the Harlem Community Arts Center, which Gwendolyn Bennett would also run later on because she'd been the one to secure its funding via her work on the Harlem Artists Guild. In 1939, the World's Fair ended, and with the end of the World's Fair, the harp actually got demolished because there was no physical space to hold it or display it. Also, when Gwendolyn tried to return back to the Harlem Arts Center for a full-time position, she found out that someone else had been tapped to run it, slash she had been pushed out of her position because for the last two years, she had been so focused on building her sculpture for the World's Fair. On top of that, the center's funding took a huge hit because a lot of the money that was going to it was diverted to the military due to the buildup to World War II, and also because many members of the art center were seen as having links to the Communist Party, so the government didn't exactly want to give them money. And then also, Augusta began getting accused of naming names of possible communist sympathizers within the Harlem art scene to the FBI, which turned a lot of her earlier friends against her. It's almost certain that she did not in fact do this, but just the fact that people thought she did was enough to make her persona non grata. The same year, 1939, Augusta tried to bring an art center back to Harlem. She opened her own gallery, the Salon of Contemporary Negro Art, and with the salon, Augusta was the first African-American woman to open and run her own gallery in United States history. However, Augusta struggled to get the funding for the gallery to operate, and it closed in less than a year, even though it had been popular and was always full of guests, no one really bought art from it. The closing of the salon basically marked the end of Augusta's art career. And as if that wasn't bad enough, while all that was happening, this eccentric white author, Joe Gould, basically became obsessed with Augusta. Joe Gould was most likely on the autism spectrum and most likely suffered from hypergraphia, aka a need to constantly be writing, and was famous in New York intellectual and modernist circles. He had first met Augusta in 1923, and by 1926, he was obsessively writing her letters, even when she had asked him to stop. By the late 1930s, he was telling everyone who would listen that the two were in love and were carrying on a long and passionate affair. 
Once again, Joe refused to stop when Augusta asked him to, and by 1939, his behavior had escalated to trying to propose to her in person several times. All of this led to Augusta's decision to move away from the city into upstate New York in the early 1940s. By 1945, she ended up settling in Saugerties, New York, in the Catskill Mountains. When she was in upstate New York, Augusta ended up reconciling both with her daughter, who she hadn't seen for over two decades, as well as with her larger extended family. In order to make ends meet, Augusta took on several different jobs, including making sculptures for tourists, raising chickens, teaching at local summer camps, and even briefly working as a lab assistant at a local cancer research center. She also got into writing. She wrote murder mysteries and children's books, but none of her manuscripts have actually been published. In 1962, Augusta's health took a pretty big decline, so she moved back to New York City to live with her daughter, Irene. She ended up dying in New York City on March 26, 1962, at the age of 70, from cancer. Overall, Augusta Savage was one of the most famous sculptors of the Harlem Renaissance. She was most known for her hyper-realistic sculptures of the human body and her ability to capture movement super well. She was considered to be the finest sculptor of the African-American body of the early 20th century and was the first African-American sculptor to do nude sculptures. She was also very focused on using her sculptures as a way to show African pride, most likely inspired by her friendship with Marcus Garvey, and her work did not fall back on traditional stereotypes of African Americans and instead was focused on showing agency. Two of her most famous works are her sculptures, Gamine and the Harp. Gamine was created around 1929 and was one of her most successful sculptures and directly led to her being able to go to Europe. It either shows a generic young African-American boy or one of her nephews, Ellis Ford. Like a lot of her work, it is very lifelike and clearly African-American without relying on stereotypes. Also, like much of Augusta's work, it shows someone who clearly is not in the upper classes. Gamine is made out of clay, plaster, and paint. The Harp is Augusta's other best-known work. It was commissioned for the 1939 World's Fair and was such a massive piece of work that she began making it in 1937. Physically, it is her largest work. It was 16 feet tall when she was finished. It shows a harp made up of the bodies of 12 African-American singers with a large hand holding them together. The harp is meant to symbolize the power of black music and the large hand holding them together symbolizes the hand of God holding African-Americans together. Even though the harp is a massive sculpture and it was one of the most popular sites at the World's Fair, it was destroyed after the fair wrapped up because she couldn't afford to have it permanently cast in copper. Even though Augusta Savage was a really popular sculptor and made numerous works in her lifetime, 
only between 12 and 19 of her sculptures still exist. The exact number is a little iffy. The lack of existing sculptures by Augusta is largely due to how she sculpted. Augusta could rarely afford to work in bronze, so she usually made her sculptures out of plaster and then painted over them or covered them in polish, which meant that her sculptures are really delicate and would physically fall apart over time, or in the cases of her larger sculptures, she struggled to find a permanent home for them and they would just get destroyed by whatever location was temporarily hosting them. In addition to her work as an artist, Augusta was also hugely important for her work as an educator. She used both her studio and her gallery, even though they both ended up failing, as a space to teach other African-American artists and to help connect them to a larger network of artists, both within the Harlem Renaissance and across the United States. So, for those fans of the study guides who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap of the life and work of Augusta Savage. Augusta Savage was born in Green Cove Springs, Florida in 1892. Growing up, her family had trouble making ends meet even though her father was a local Methodist minister. Augusta was interested in sculpture from an early age thanks to her town's reputation for its red clay. However, her father wasn't thrilled by her interest in art due to his strict fundamentalist beliefs and would literally beat her to keep her from making little sculptures. When Augusta was 15, the family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida due to her father's work, and Augusta met an art teacher who convinced her to keep making art, as well as a principal who paid her to give the other children art lessons. That same year, when she was only 15, she got married to a local carpenter, and the next year, she gave birth to a daughter, Irene. However, her husband died soon after, and Augusta almost immediately remarried to another carpenter named James Savage, which is how she got the name Augusta Savage. The years after her marriage to James Savage were difficult due to a lack of family support and a lack of access to materials. Augusta had to temporarily stop producing work until 1919 when her school principal helped her get access to clay and she resumed sculpting. That year, she entered her work into a local county fair and won a ribbon of honor and, more importantly, a cash prize of $25. She used this money to move to Jacksonville, where she started making sculptures of local prominent African Americans. While this business venture failed, Augusta was convinced that she was ready to become a real artist thanks to some art classes she was taking at the college that would end up becoming Florida A&M. Thanks to a recommendation from some of her teachers, Augusta decided that it was time for her to kick her husband to the curb and move up to New York City, which is what she did, with a whopping $6.40 in her pocket. Due to the lack of funds that she had on hand, Augusta ended up sending her daughter, Irene, who was a teenager at the time, back down to Florida to live with her parents. Because of her lack of money, Augusta took on a job 
working as an apartment cleaner before enrolling in Cooper Union School of Art, where she got a scholarship and ended up completing four years' worth of curriculum in three years. Pretty soon in New York, Augusta got a reputation for being a talented sculptor, specifically for being able to capture the African-American body in non-racially stereotyped ways. Her big break happened when she was chosen to make a bust of W.E.B. Du Bois for the New York Public Library, and soon after that, she was chosen to make a bust of Marcus Garvey. Through making the bust of Marcus Garvey, she met her third husband, Robert Poston. However, only five months after the marriage, Robert died after a boat accident related to a UNIA mission. A year after Robert's death, Augusta won a scholarship to study art in France, but once the scholarship committee found out she was African-American, they rescinded the cash prize, which stirred up a huge scandal within New York and made Augusta the Woman of the Month. Two years later, Augusta won another scholarship to study abroad in Italy this time, but she had to turn down the offer due to some financial difficulties her family was going to, was going through. At last, in 1929, Augusta was finally able to visit Europe after she won the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship thanks to a sculpture of her nephew that she had made. During her time in Paris, she worked with a French sculptor who adored her, had two of her works exhibited at the Grand Palais, won another Rosenwald Fellowship, as well as a Carnegie Foundation grant, and got to meet Josephine Baker and Ada Bricktop-Smith. Augusta returned back to the United States in 1932, and in addition to making art, she started teaching art. She opened the Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, which she used to give free art lessons to local artists and became a member of the Harlem Artists Guild. And with her position on the Guild, she helped convince the WPA to include African-American artists in its different federal programs. 1937 was a highlight for Augusta. She was chosen to make a sculpture for the 1939 New York World Fair and the sculpture called the Harp which ended up being 16 feet tall, was one of the most popular sites at the fair. However, she had to pay for it entirely out of pocket, and once the fair ended, it was completely demolished. In 1939, Augusta lost one of her jobs because, well, she'd been pushed out of it during the drama of the fair, and when she tried to open a gallery of her own, it soon closed down due to a lack of funding. On top of this, she was basically being stalked by an eccentric white author, Joe Gould. Between her financial failures, the stalking, and the fact that her art just wasn't selling as well anymore, Augusta ended up moving to upstate New York, where she would live until 1962, holding a collection of jobs, including selling chickens and working at a local cancer research center. In 1962, her health took a pretty big decline, so she moved back to New York City to live with her daughter until she died of cancer at the age of 70 on March 26, 1962. Augusta Savage's legacy remains her sculpture. 
she continues to be well known for her hyper-realistic sculptures of the human body, her refusal to rely on racial stereotypes in her sculptures of African Americans, and the way she showed agency and Black pride in her work. In addition, she is well known for her work as an educator and the way she used her studio and gallery as a space to mentor younger African-American artists and help connect them to a larger network of artists. Most of my research for this episode came from a Smithsonian American Art Museum article on Augusta, a Florida Division of Cultural Affairs article on Augusta, Nadia Siles' article in The Guardian, the book Women Artists of the Harlem Renaissance by Amy Helene Kirsch, Dana Rami and Dana Rami Berry, and Colleen Nicole Carosa's book A Black Women's History of the United States, and Susan Stamberg, in Susan Stamberg's NPR article, sculptor Augusta Savage said her legacy was the work of her students. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can check out the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, or want to suggest a study guide topic, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. As always, if you want to financially support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. We have a bunch of different levels with different prizes, including access to tangent casts, which are shorter bi-weekly episodes on people, places, and things that we can't cover in a normal length episode. The next tangent cast is going to be on the fabulously named Madame Toussaint Welcome, and you also, and other prizes, include getting to choose a topic for a tangent cast. If you want to reach out on other social media, we're available on Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and on Instagram at SadGirlStudy. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let us know how we're doing. Read or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!